The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. This evening our sermon text is coming from the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and our text will be verses 17 through 21. Uh, But for the sake of the context, we're going to read all of chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. This is God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. This is our sermon text. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask that he would add his blessing upon us tonight as we study it. Father, your word is truth. And we pray now that as we come to study it together, that you would pour out your spirit upon us 
that we might draw near to you through your word and that you might conform us into the image of our Savior. We pray, O Father, as we consider our glorious heavenly calling, that you would bless us, that we might live this, leave this place energized to live out of our heavenly identity, for indeed we are those who have been born again and have been given a heavenly hope. Lift our eyes and our gaze heavenwards this day, we pray, for the sake of the glory of your name and the good of your people. We pray this in Christ. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I would imagine that there's almost no one here this evening who has not experienced what it feels like to be a stranger. We've all had that feeling before. Some of us, maybe it's just because we've moved down the street and we've been introduced to people who we've never met before. And even though they're a lot like us and we have a lot in common, we still feel that sense of alienation, that sense of distance between ourselves and between them. Maybe it's more extreme than that. Maybe you've moved from one region of the country into another region of the country, or maybe even you've moved from one country into another country, and you're a foreigner. But whatever the level of this strangerness, this estrangement that you've felt before, you know that it's, it's not a good feeling. It's not pleasant to feel like everyone is looking at you. It's not pleasant to be in a situation where you're surrounded by people who act differently than you, that think differently than you, that speak differently than you. And when we encounter situations like this, we have a tendency, we have a tendency to begin to assimilate ourselves to the culture in which we find ourselves, don't we? And we know that this is the case. If we move from one place to another, after a while, the distinctness of our accent begins to tone itself down. We begin to adopt mannerisms that are common uh, to the people around us. We begin to pick up their phrases, their ways of speaking, even their ways of thinking, even their ways of living and dressing and acting. But this assimilation that takes place amongst human cultures as we go from one to another it also takes place, more importantly, at a spiritual level. You see, there is a danger for the Christian that as he is in this world surrounded by earthly people, we will begin to lose sight of our heavenly nature. That is a danger that Paul is addressing here in this passage. You see, Paul is telling us here that the Christian, he has a pattern of obedience. He draws himself out as as one who is a pattern for the Christian's obedience. But he also tells us that there is a danger that we might be led astray by those whom he identifies here as enemies of the cross of Christ. And the great danger for the Christian, if he's led astray by these enemies of the cross of Christ, is that he begins to adopt the manners, the patterns of life, the ways of thinking of the earthly-minded man. He begins to lose his heavenly identity. And Paul would have us this evening to seek very intentionally to maintain our heavenly identity because the godly man, the Christian man or woman, boy or girl, is a heavenly being. And because that is the case, Paul would have us here to learn 
to maintain our heavenly identity by learning the pattern, the peril, and the promise of the heavenly man on this earth. In verse 17, we see the pattern of the heavenly man. It's Paul himself and Paul as he follows Christ Jesus. We need to learn there to imitate the pattern of the heavenly man's life. Next, in verses 18 through 19, we see that we must avoid the peril of falling into the earthly man's example. He says that there are enemies of the cross of Christ out there, and if we're not careful, we can begin to emulate them instead of emulating the pattern that we have set forth for us by Paul. And then lastly, and gloriously, uh, Paul tells us here that not only must we imitate the pattern of the heavenly man's life, not only must we avoid the peril of the earthly man's way, but we must meditate on the heavenly man's promise. He points us to the promise of the heavenly man's future. And he roots our identity. He encourages us that while we already are men and women who have a heavenly nature, we have a heavenly citizenship, there is coming a day where we will experience that in a much more glorious, in a much more permanent, in a much more wonderful way. So he would call us then to do these things and in doing to maintain our heavenly identity. Look with me, if you will, at verse 17, and we'll begin to consider uh, the pattern of the heavenly man's life. He says there in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, Paul here is inviting the Philippian Christians to look upon his life as an example of what it means to live as a heavenly man in this present evil age. Now, verse 17 rests largely on what just came before it, doesn't it? We just read the entire chapter, and the reason why we read the entire chapter is because in this chapter, maybe more so than any other place in the New Testament, we have Paul giving us a snapshot of his own Christian experience. Think about what he says here. He says, uh, by implication here in verse 17, that the Christians are to look to him, and they are to, like him, not trust in their own righteousness, but trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are like him to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, even unto the point of death if it might be necessary. They are to, like him, do all of these things, live this kind of life so that they might, as Paul desires, seek to obtain the resurrection from the dead. They are to press forward as Paul towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Nonetheless, failing, but taking comfort that Christ has made them his own. What he's telling us here is that everything that is true of him and his Christian experience, we ought to seek to emulate. We ought to seek to imitate. And as we observe Paul's Christian experience, what stands out to us is that Paul is imitating someone else in his own Christian experience, isn't he? He's imitating our Savior. You see, Paul's life is a life of suffering in light of the glory that awaits him. And Paul is calling our lives to be lives of suffering in light of the glory 
that awaits us. You see, we follow Paul as he follows the Savior. That's what he's trying to impress upon us here. Imitate him as he imitates the true man of heaven, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we can learn a lot from this small verse. We can learn, for one thing, that the Christian life is going to be difficult. It's going to be a life of suffering. Paul suffered. Christ suffered. We're going to suffer. We should anticipate that. We should expect that. We should acknowledge that. And brothers and sisters, there are a lot of disgruntled, there are a lot of depressed, and there are a lot of discouraged Christians sitting in pews of churches just like this one today because they have yet to grasp this important element of the Christian life. The Christian life on this earth is a life of suffering. It's a life of striving. But it is a life lived in light of the glorious promise of the future. The Christian life is lived not for the here and now, uh, but for the there and the then, as it were. It's a life of suffering. But we also learn some very practical lessons from this verse. One thing we see here is that imitation is the biblical mode of discipleship. Imitation is the biblical mode of discipleship. And that, that's packed with practical implications for us, especially those of you who are young in the faith or just physically young. It tells us that if we want to learn to be godly in Christ Jesus, if we want to learn what it looks like to be Christian men and women, the way to go about doing that is by imitating those who imitate Christ and imitate Paul. We are to come alongside those who are more mature than us in the faith. Men, if you want to learn how to do family worship, go and find a man who does it on a regular basis. Sit next to him as he does it. Observe how he teaches his children. Observe how he reads the scripture and prays with them, how he catechizes them. Young women, if you want to learn how to be a godly wife, go and find an older woman, a woman who's seeking to apply the scripture to herself and her life and sit under her. Imitate her. This verse tells us that this is one of the ways in which we grow. One of the ways in which the teaching of the scripture is enfleshed for us. It's brought out for us and we see how it works practically in a day-to-day situation. But there is another element here in verse 17 before we move on that we, I believe, must make note of. And this is the reality that Paul here presents himself as a model for us to imitate as he imitates Christ. Not because he's perfect. You see, Paul does not seek to create the illusion that he has attained perfection in this life. And brothers and sisters, this is, quite frankly, good news for the Christian. You know, he says, let the mature think this way. And what, what is that way? That way is forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to that which lies ahead. And brothers and sisters, Christian maturity is not creating the illusion of perfection for those around you. 
I think it's an important thing for us to note this evening. I think it's particularly important for those men who are considering office in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I speak to myself here, of course, as well. Christian maturity is not pretending like you're perfect. Actually, if we were to follow Paul's pattern, we are to be brutally honest with those around us that we're failing. Now, we shouldn't rejoice in the fact that we're sinning. We shouldn't rejoice in the fact that we can't attain the goal, but we ought to be realistic. And we ought to understand that as we live on this earth, we will not obtain to the goal which we're aiming at, ultimately. But as Paul lays out for us the pattern of the heavenly man's life, he also notes in the following verses, 18 through 19, that there is another uh, potential pattern for living, as it were. And apparently he's concerned here in verse 18 that the Philippian Christians are not led astray uh, by this pattern. He wants them to avoid the peril of the earthly man's example here. Look at what he says in verse 18 and following. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he describes them here four ways. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. Fourth, with minds set on earthly things. So he's told them that they are to emulate him. And now he tells them that there are those, perhaps even in their midst, who they are not to emulate. Now, commentators struggle with the identity of who exactly Paul is referring to here. Some believe it's the Judaizers that he's been speaking about throughout the book of Philippians. I personally am fairly convinced by that position, but I'm in the minority, so I'll tell you that. Uh, Some think that this is just generally speaking of those who claim the name of Christ, but who walk in a way that shows that they're not truly Christians. And then some even take the position that these are just people out in the world who do not believe the gospel and indeed may be hostile, openly hostile. Maybe that's why they're enemies of the cross of Christ. But whatever the case, what is clear is that all three of those categories, whether or not they're the Judaizers of Paul's day or whether they're the false professor of our day and his day or whether they're those who are just openly hostile to Christ, all three of those categories of people fits this description. They fit this description. Their end is destruction. They are destined, as it were, for judgment. Their God is not the Lord God of Israel who made the heavens and the earth. It's their belly. Probably the meaning here is not just gluttony, for say, but also sexual immorality. All the carnal appetites of this world, that's what they live for. They live for their own pleasure. That's what motivates them to get up in the morning. They are ensnared. They are dominated by their own desires, their own sinful desires. They glory in their shame. Those things which ought to make them mortified, ought to make them ashamed of themselves, they're not ashamed of. They don't feel bad about it. They glory in it. 
They shout it from the housetop, as it were. And then, lastly, their minds are focused on the things of the earth. Here, of course, this means sinful things. The earthly man's existence, as it were, is oriented downward. And the way that the heavenly man's existence, we'll see in just a second, is oriented towards heaven, the earthly man lives, breathes for the things of this world. That's what he cares about. He cares about his own enjoyment of this life. And he's unable, as it were, to lift his head from his horizontal view to see what is coming in the future. The heavenly man is ensnared, as it were, to his carnal appetites. But more so, as verse 18 has told us, these these people are not simply confused, as it were. They are actively enemies of Christ and his cross. Now you can see here how the Judaizers might fit well in this category. You see, what did the Judaizers do? Where they were enemies of the cross of Christ in the sense that they, they wanted to maintain their own righteousness on the basis of their obedience in the Mosaic Law. They weren't willing, as Paul was, to part with his righteousness, to call it rubbish, to call it worthless, as it were. They clinged to it. They desired it. And because of that, they were enemies of the cross of Christ. But the meaning, of course, could be broader. Anybody who is hostile to the gospel of the Lord Jesus fits in this category. Anybody who, even if they pretend not to be hostile, yet refuses to bow the knee to King Jesus fits into this category. Ultimately, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There is a hostility there towards Christ, and indeed, as a result of that, Towards his people. The enemies of Christ seek to distort the truth of God. Whether that's in the church seeking to distort the importance of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to the preaching of the gospel, whether that's outside of the church seeking to deny God's word and even God's nature, whatever it might be the case, their goal is to distort and to destroy the truth of God. These earthly-minded people are, as we've already noted, really, the antithesis of the heavenly people that God is right, or that Paul is writing to here in this passage. And to return to the very beginning, their, their end, as it were, is judgment, destruction. Now, friends... If you're here this evening and you're listening to that description, uh, the description that Paul has laid out here of what it looks like to be someone who is earthly-minded, the description of what it looks like to be someone who is ensnared, as it were, entangled, enslaved to the desires of their flesh. If you're sitting here this evening and you're thinking, you know, actually I am more responsive to the desires of my sinful flesh, to my belly, than I am to God. I love my sin, and I love God. Friend, if you fit that category, you need to be aware 
that what Paul is saying here is unambiguous. The future is dark for the earthly man. The future is dark for the earthly man. But as we transition from this verse into verses 20 and following, I want to make you aware that there is good news even now. You see, though we might now, or though you might now be an enemy of the cross of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, even now, is pleading with you to come to himself. He is pleading with you to receive and to rest upon him, to be like Paul, to throw off all of the things of this world, all the cultural capital that you have all of the righteousness that you believe you possess through your good works or whatever it might be and to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and become one who looks longingly to the future looks longingly upon the Savior who is coming from heaven because Paul turns our attention now not to the destruction that awaits the earthly man but to the promise, the glorious promise of the heavenly man's future. Look with me, if you will, at verse 20 and following. It says here, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be, or our lowly body rather, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, the earthly man lives, as we've already said, for the here and the now. He gets to bed in the morning to continue to further his own enjoyment of the sinful pleasures of this world. And that is absolutely the opposite of how the heavenly man is to live. The heavenly man is to live with his eyes firmly focused upon the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavenly man is to live as a citizen of heaven. He's to live in accordance with that which is already true of him. He already is a stranger in a strange land on this earth. He is a sojourner. He is an exile here. And he is to live not according to to the ways of this world, but he's to live in accordance with the constitution of heaven, as it were. That's where his citizenship is. And that's where his hope is. You see, the hope of the Christian here is that we await our Savior. We await our Savior who even now sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven who will return who will return to this world as a conquering king. But for the Christian, he's not only a conquering conquering king, he's a liberating savior. He's coming to rescue us from this age. He's coming to rescue us from the things of this world. And in so doing, he brings about something which every Christian must long. He brings about the transformation of our lowly bodies. Indeed, we might think it's interesting that Paul points us to this particular aspect of redemption history here. You know, earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul freely says, 
to live as Christ, to die as gain. He is not somebody who's scared of dying. He's not someone who thinks uh, that his time, as it were, off this earth is going to be bad. He, he looks forward to the day where he leaves this earth and he enters into heaven. But you know, that's not actually where he points us here. He points us past that. He doesn't point us to death and to the separation of our soul from our body. But he points us to a time where what is already true of us, that we are heavenly men and heavenly women, will be true in a more consummate way. Will be true not only of our objective identity, our citizenship, but will be true in every fiber of our being. Note how he identifies our current bodies. They're lowly bodies. Now, some of you don't need me to tell you that. You're wracked with the pains and with the aches of this world. Some of you may think, well, it doesn't really apply to me. My, my body hasn't deteriorated that much. Maybe I'm young, but think about this. It's not just a reference to the aches and the pains. It's a reference to the desires of your flesh. It's a reference to the reality of indwelling sin. It's a reference to the reality that as hard as we try to fight against our sin in this world, we will never be totally free of it. And what Paul is pointing us towards here is not just the alleviation of physical pain, though that is here, but he's pointing us towards the alleviation of a much deeper pain. He's pointing us to a time where we will, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, be transformed in our bodies. Our bodies will be transformed from bearing the image, as he says there, of the man of dust, Adam, into bearing the image of the man of heaven, Christ. He's pointing us forward to a time where this sinful flesh will put on a perfected, transformed, glorified flesh. He's pointing us to a time where this perishability will put on imperishability. He's he's pointing us to a time where we will no longer suffer because of the evil that has racked this world since man fell from the estate wherein he was created. He's pointing us to the restoration of our whole beings. We're already heavenly men. But on that moment, in that moment when we are transformed, we will be thoroughly heavenly beings. Every part of us will be conformed, as it were, to the image of our Savior Jesus Christ, the true man of heaven. Brothers and sisters, that is a promise that we can meditate upon. That's a promise that can motivate us even as it motivated Paul to suffer for Christ's sake here on this earth, to spend ourselves, as it were, for the sake of Christ, to do everything in our power to bring glory to our Savior, even if it means pain on this earth. Because there is a day coming where we will be raised in glory and it will be more blessed than we can ever imagine on this earth. This is what it means to live and to think like a heavenly man.
This is what it means. Our citizenship indeed affects everything about us. And even now as we consider that we are already king or we are already citizens of the kingdom of heaven as it were and even as we consider what that will mean for us in the future uh, we need to think for a moment about the implications it has for us now uh, we began the sermon by considering what it's like to be a stranger to be a foreigner to be someone who is surrounded on all sides by people who are not like them well brothers and sisters being a heavenly man Being a heavenly woman, being a heavenly child, that means that you're going to be different. That means you're going to be a stranger, an exile, a pilgrim on this earth. That means that you're going to be different from everybody else at work. That means you're going to be different from the other neighbors on your street. That means you're going to stick out like a sore thumb in our current age. Because you live your life in accordance with the constitution of heaven. Because you bow your knee, first and foremost, to the king of heaven. When you speak, you speak with a heavenly accent. And everybody around you knows that you're different. But friends, Paul is calling us not to seek to assimilate ourselves to the culture around us. But he's calling us to continue to be different. He's telling us that we have a duty to be different. The heavenly man has a duty to represent well our heavenly country and our heavenly king as we make our way through this world. And as we close, let it be true of all of us here this evening that we would seek to learn to pattern ourselves after the heavenly man, Christ Jesus, that we would learn to avoid the trap of falling into the example of the earthly man, and that we would begin even more to meditate upon the promise of our glorious heavenly future. Let that be true of all of us, for the good of this church, for the extension of the kingdom, and for the glory of our God. Amen. Let's all pray. Father God, we are thankful that you have given us your word. We are thankful, O Lord, that you have given us your word to direct us how we might be those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus in this present evil age. But we, Father, are thankful that you have given us your word first and foremost because it testifies to us of the glories of of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Father, that you have set before our eyes, even this evening, the promise of our future. And we pray, O Lord, that every heart in this room would burn with a desire to serve our Savior and to walk faithfully in this world in light of the glories that await us when we will be transformed and when we, Father, We'll behold our Savior and be in the enjoyment of his blessedness to all eternity. Father, we thank you that you have given us the gift of yourself. And we pray, O Father, now 
that you would help us as we leave this place to live in light of the glorious truths which we've considered in this small amount of time. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.